You pay how much for some face wash? I was too shamed because I had buyer's remorse. I sat there looking at $500 worth of cold cream and cleanser on my bed that I had paid for on a cruise, shaking my head like I know better. But yet and still, I got got. But that's what I get because I was the gullible one. Hey, this is Michelle Spiva, and welcome to, to part two of the Gullibility Con. I want you to join me on the flip as we get into gullibility and you. Okay, see you on the flip. I looked at all the pretty packaging and I looked at the, the little pearlescent little balls in the jar and uh, spatulas and all the little accoutrements to make it uh, seem like I was getting a good value for all this stuff. I had gone on a cruise with a friend and I had gotten caught up, honey, caught up and went to get a facial. And when I walked out of there, the little girl had told me so much about how this is going to do all this stuff for me. It's going to uh, lift the layers of dead skin and bubble it away and all this stuff. And I was like, okay, here you go. And the 500 and some odd dollars later, I was sitting there looking at this stuff. Now, I'm going to tell you, I was so disgusted, I never used it. I never used any of the product and I couldn't send it back. And I was like, that's on me. <coughs> Excuse me, you guys, because I would go on to, to learn that there is something about being in an atmosphere uh, where a lot of stuff is happening. You see, I wasn't the only one buying this. It was a group of people and they were talking about, oh, and I don't need, I don't, I don't know if there was a ringer in the crowd and it wasn't even a large crowd. I want to say it was like five of us that came out at the same time in um, the retail area of uh, the spa on the, on the cruise. And I didn't even buy as much as some of the other people. Oh, honey, they had people who were buying enough for it to be packaged and shipped back to their homes. Yes. And I sitting up there like, why did I do that? Well, number one, I was doing it because I was sold that it would make life easier for me for skincare. Number two, I was doing it because the crowd was doing it. So that must make it all right. And then number three, I was doing it because they were telling me that the retail value on this is so much higher. And if you only get, I mean, if you can get it here, we have a special spa deal where you can get X, Y, and Z off. So they told me I was getting like $2,000 worth of stuff with all these extra little plastic spatulas and brushes and stuff if I got it today only. So there was a lot of stuff going on. Today, I'm going to be focusing on gull the gullibility con. Now, yesterday, I, I ran through uh, the foundations of uh, what this meant. I talked about Gustave Le Bon's book, The, the Crowd, and, a, and it was called A Study of the Popular Mind. And... Um, and how it gave birth to thinkers. It was, like I said, it was written uh, uh, earlier than the First World War. But then after the First, for, uh, First World War, uh, you had thinkers uh, like Walter Lippmann come out with this book called Public Opinion. And um, 
you could tell that these contemporaries of him, Edward Bernays and others, were starting to think of ways to control the crowd so you didn't end up with other world wars. And so after his public opinion uh, piece that really got people uh, riled in his defense of why the elite are more responsible for policy and governance than the average Joe Q public, you get Edward Bernays, who would go on to become the quote-unquote father of public relations, or AKA the ultimate, the, the ultimate and penultimate father of spin, who came out with many works, uh, writings, as well as a body of work for both commercial retail as well as government. And he actually, public relations used to be called propaganda until it got a bad rap uh, during World War II. And so they changed it to public relations. It used to be PRC, so the Public Relations Council. Even with that, it was subconsciously appealing to the fact that, oh, it's a group of us and uh, we're here for your benefit. And uh, and so the crowd would more readily accept Public Relations Council than they would of just a Public Relations spin doctor. Uh, And I'm not poo-pooing on any of this stuff because it is part of our society. It makes us who we are. And for the most part, if you look at it, when used responsibly, it is a better way. Um, And so today I'm talking about us, we, the end users of um, this public opinion. So as I said before, when I started dabbling in online uh, marketing sales and, and making my living through this medium of the internet, I had to do crash courses and I read the the books that the internet marketers were reading, Caldini's Influence with the Six uh, Principles of Persuasion. I've talked to you about that on other uh, podcasts. Uh, um, I've, I, I went and I, I read a lot of uh, the books on virality. I've talked to you about the book Contagious uh, by Dr. Uh, Josh uh, Berg, Berger. Um, I've talked to you about Hooked, near a doll's book on how to make uh, people crave your products um, by setting up a habitual loop of triggering them and, and all of those things. But it wasn't until I digged a little deeper and I went behind the curtain of the wizard that I understood that those were just diluted byproducts to make nice with people that I started to learn the real machinations of why people do the stuff they do. And this is not a scathing review or anything. This is just a wisdom smack that I want to share with you all because I had to get to that point. And if you've already gotten there, great. You'll Hopefully this will just help ignite and confirm that you're on the right track. But if you haven't, Bear with me and let it let it do whatever it's supposed to. If it's supposed to plant a seed, water it, harvest it, or or share it with others, whatever it is, let it just you know do its job uh, and hopefully entertain you. So, with the gullibility side of this con <laughs> that we engage in, it is not where it, there is a victim per se. It is because we want to be relieved of the burden of freedom. Now, I, I've talked and mentioned, I've mentioned um, 
uh, Frankel's uh, The Meaning of, of Life, Victor, Victor Frankel's Meaning of Life book, uh, where he talks about our responsibility to maintain our freedom no matter what is being done to you. I mean, there's even graphic uh, things he explores in the book of extreme pain and how to be able to move forward to understand that the people inflicting this pain on you a lot of times are doing what they're told because they secretly need a leader and their leader has um, diverted and uh, determined that that's their job to do this to you. And so he said, he talks about how he could lay on the, um, on the, on the examining table when they would be flaying his skin with no anesthetic and he could just look at them and, and have pity for them because they were locked in this gullibility con of not taking responsible for their freedom, but that his freedom was that they could not cage him. Uh, there are other, uh, and I'm, I'm, I don't know if this actually happened. A famous boxer, his name was Hurricane. Well, his nickname was the Hurricane, a black boxer. Um, earlier, uh, uh, 20th century, and he got convicted for a uh, crime he did not commit. Um, he was very successful as a, bo- a boxer. And yes, we can we can talk about how certain uh, groups did not like to see him prosper. We could definitely talk about that. I could even go off and talk about uh, Dr. Carol Anderson's work on uh, white rage, uh, but I'm not doing. I mean, I'm not doing that today. <laughs> so. Um, but when he went to prison, he informed them that he was never going to be a prisoner there. He refused to wear the prison uh, uniforms. He refused to answer to anything but his full name. Um, and he maintained his innocence and he educated himself enough to become his own litigation to get himself out and overturn uh, that erroneous conviction. And it was because he maintained his freedoms and he was not gullible. Now, I'm going to say this. Gullibility is the easy blue pill. It is. It is the one that helps us with comfort. I fiddled around with actually uh, deeming this as um, the, 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 the comfort road. But, you know, that that dumbs it down a little too much because it's not necessarily just to make you comfortable. A lot of times it is your training and um, the embed of what you know. And um, as I said before, there was, um, uh, in part one, I talked about how uh, contemporary-wise, Overton talked about how the average mind is only constrained to a few paths of thinking. And so you have to find a way to either gradually move them to where you want. That can take years. If you don't have a lot of time, then you do an explosive action where you show them the unthinkable and the radical so that you can move them to what they used to only want to think of as maybe acceptable. So you move them to the outer limits of what they can handle. Now, he didn't say it as just that. He said that politicians, because you are there and responsible for being responsible for these people, that you're constrained because of what they can um, handle. And uh, it was his his nice way of trying to give uh, these people ethics. And um, but he talked about how if you want people to accept a thing, you don't try to sell them the thing. You 
change their mind so that they want the thing. And so today I'm going to be talking about how to create cravings in people. And I'll be the first to tell you that if you're going to be successful online to to get any kind of money, you got to learn this stuff. But you want to be as um, ethical and moral about it as possible. And I want to use both of those words because ethics and morals are different. They are in the same tribe, but they are not the same people. Ethics is what you agree to to get away with. So like it used to be ethical for segregation to happen. It used to be ethical for apartheid to happen, but it wasn't moral. It wasn't right. You know, um, morality is that that bigger issue of the golden rule. Um, and so looking at those types of things in light of the fact that there are um, now we have generations because uh, yesterday when I was talking about uh, the birthing of propaganda and public relations and public opinion, which is really not public opinion. It is just something created and given to the public and said and told, this is your opinion. That happened in the 20s, the 1920s. That's 100 years ago. And so we have at least, you could actually use the old standard of a new generation every every 20 years. That is at least four, but most likely five generations. So can you imagine how many iterations that has gone to now so that we now understand how we can have people behaving in certain ways on social media that used to be unthinkable. I'm going to be devoting a podcast to the idea of the online troll um, because we all have them. And I'm going to tell you part of the reason why a lot of people uh, don't share with the world what they would is because of that phenomenon. And I'm going to say it is the great, great, great grandchild of this whole public opinion kind of thing in the group heard, group think uh, mentality of what people do. Um, I'm going to talk about the dark triad. I'm going to talk about some of the studies of uh, sadism or what they call everyday sadism. You know, so people who are sadistic, who derive emotional release and pleasure out of other people's suffering. That's different from schadenfreude. Now, I did schadenfreude. Uh, That's more of the group think, oh, you know, let's, let's gossip about people. No, I'm talking about folks who they actually get off on seeing you suffer all the time (laughs) you know so that's a little different it's more extreme than the actual you know the schadenfreude of kicking when somebody trips and falls you know so that's different um and so when you're looking at how this gullibility con affects us personally we see it in the way we behave on social media um so much so that the like button doesn't mean what you think it means um the like button has now become a source of contention for people trying to have one-on-one relationships um i didn't think that this would ever happen to me and then i was told that it did for instance um someone <laughs> uh put up something And because me and a few others didn't like it, we were deemed not loyal and not part of their cult, their their clique, whatever you want to call it. Now, I'm talking about grown, grown people, not young adults, not new adults, grown people. 
But because the court of public opinion says that you are now part of my tribe, if you are liking my stuff and affirming me all the time in public, that means that you are my friend. But where did we get that definition from? Where did that come from? Well, I'll tell you, it came from uh, a company, companies who got together and they studied algorithms of how to keep people engaged. And they made it where uh, like the like button can be weaponized. Uh, They can withhold it from that person who is doing stuff for the likes, like a Pavlov's dog kind of situation. They can also use it where you now have relationships of people saying, well, you know, we're in a relationship and you didn't like all my text. So do we have a problem? It's just crazy. All of the stuff that people do. And yesterday I talked about how um, people, uh, P.T. Barnum talked about how people are always looking for shortcuts and hookups uh, and um, easy, easy ways to money. And the like button is kind of like that. It's supposed to symbolize what should take an ongoing lifetime to build in relationship. You can't just press a button to show that you're with somebody. Your enemies can press a button just as easily as your friends can. And um, this is not about getting on a high horse to preach anything. It's just um, showing you how this fifth generation of propagandists, a.k.a. uh, public relations, a.k.a. public opinion, a.k.a. groupthink, herd mentality, has totally eclipsed into this new way that we just take it for granted. We don't question it. And it goes back to those roots. And there, trust me, I had to just pick a line to start with because we could go back over and over again. I've, you know, I've even mentioned the famous saying uh, attributed to Napoleon that says religion was a control mechanism developed to keep the poor from killing the or murdering the rich. I could talk about, you know, that too. Um, I've, I've talked about in this, in, in the book, Fooling Houdini, uh, by Alex Stone, how uh, when the magicians are um, are are creating their um, uh, their their tricks, how they actually in the inner circle are the echelon, the elite. They talk about how much uh, has to go into doing that trick. But when they sell tricks or how to do tricks to the masses, they talk about, oh, just do this. And they show you enough for it to look easy. He even talks about how Houdini throughout his life would swallow. He started swallowing smaller things and then bringing them back up. He worked up to where he could swallow uh, small little apples and bring them back up so that he can make his throat dexterous enough to swallow a key or some kind of other mechanism to help him get out of his bonds when he needed to, to bring it back up. That takes time. Um, He even talked about how people um, with sleight of hand, how many hours and and years they work on making their fingers um, fluid enough and nimble and agile enough to make these moves. But this was the bigger thing that he said. He said that 
In magic, you want to make it look effortless. Now, you can apply this to all of the arts. You can apply this to anything um, that people are observing for entertainment. But everybody, you know, wants to say, say oh, it's easy. And uh, even with our practice, we want our practice to be easy, too. Um, I have had it where um, there have been times when... Uh, I've put together training systems and I've had to actually figure out how to put chocolate on carrots. I've had to figure out how to give people what they want, which is the easy route, but actually deliver what they're really needing, which is the road less traveled that would actually get them to what they wanted. And it, I used to get frustrated when um, I might have like 200 people going through a course and then only 30 of them continue to do what's needed and everybody else gets marginal uh, success. And it was because of this, this whole thing, the gullibility con. We are always on this hedonistic treadmill searching for our next fix of happy, our next fix of ease. And we have to kind of like be a little more cognizant of the fact that if it's too good to be true, it is. It ain't no probably. It is. We have to understand that it's up to us to take the constraints off of our pathways of thinking and our pathways of knowing so that we can do uh, what we need to. Um, two two thoughts come to mind or, or cliches or, or sayings, whatever you want to say it. And one of them is everybody wants to go to heaven, but ain't nobody ready to die. You know, and and so there's there's that one where people are not willing to pay the true cost of what it means to have what they want. And because we live in this capitalist society, for the most people that I'm talking to in a Western culture, we, we have that kind of thing. We would be we would rather globally accept the fairy tale of there is a rainbow with a pot of gold at the end of it and that. We can get to the end of the rainbow with ease. There will not be any rough terrain. You will not have to kill any dragons or obstacles. You won't have to answer any riddles of the Sphinx. You won't. I could just go on and on. We want to believe that it's easy. Um, I look at how a lot of people have made a lot of money online delivering what people wanted instead of what people needed. I remember going to a, a mastermind where I paid tens of thousands of dollars to go because I wanted to be in the inner sanctum. And I had worked hard selling um, trainings that actually did what they said they were, they were supposed to do, only to find out that the majority of people in that room that were selling stuff for way more than I was, was like, we sell them what they want. And that is a mirage. I actually had this guy tell me something real important that I remember to this day. I know his name. I'm not going to mention it. But he said, people sell, uh, people buy fantasy insurance. I was like, what? He's like, people buy fantasy insurance. He said, they buy stuff just to either say they have it because for them, the act of being able to afford it means that now I possess it. He said, there are also people who buy it so that if they want it, it's there in their repository. And I thought about this um, because I, I work a lot of 
times with um, people in both the writing world and then I work as um, a strategist forecaster and um, an idea um, generator for uh, people in uh, the business world. I see this all the time. I see it where they're like, well, can I just pay you to do it? I'm like, no. I'm not in your organization. I don't know everything. I, you can tell me to your blue in the face. I can help you even put down the steps, but either you got to hire somebody to do it, not me, <laughs> but it's got to be done. I spend a lot of time teaching people how to take an idea and understand how to implement and then execute because they're two different things. And it is because of this gullibility con that we have grown up in that people love the idea of the fantasy. They love the idea of the idea, but they do not either know how, want to, or um, dream of putting the action behind this. Um, so many books are coming up to mind. Um, uh, one of the books I talked about before that I absolutely love is by Doc, uh, is by John Braddock, and it's called uh, A Spy's Guide to Strategy. And he talks about in there how ideas are the easy part. It is the actionable part, actionable part that is the hardest. And I know that, and it's articulated in so many different ways, so much so that in our uh, my, my fiction world, I tell people ideas are cheap. I could give everybody the same idea, the same plot, the same plot points, but I can guarantee you that if people do the work, you'll come out with just as many different um, books as you will people, if they actually take those ideas and put some action behind them. And so the wisdom smack that I am talking about with this gullibility con is to, first of all, you got to wake up and you got to realize that you're always going to have the masses and then you're going to have the masters. You're going to have those masterminds that are going to step out of only being content with a few ways of thinking. And they're going to go further and they're going to attach the, the ministry of work to what they, they need to do. Um, there's this other book. And like I said before, I don't, I, I'm not going to, I promise you guys, I'm not going to have like 20 books in here of uh, different stuff, but there's this book called Peak. And in it, uh, Anders Anderson uh, talks about his work with peak performance. And um, he talks about how his work, a lot of times with helping people to become peak performers was a process where they had um, uh, practice that uh, uh had elements to it of feedback, of tweaking. So you didn't just practice. You know, you had practice, you had feedback, adjustment, hands-on, um, and and you charted it and all of that. Guess what? That is code word for hard work. <laughs> and hard work is not just the physicality of the work. It is the mental uh, changes. There's another book that I want to talk about. I'm going to be talking about in um, other podcasts called uh, The First 20 Hours uh, by Josh Kaufman, where he talks about a process that I have been able to successfully use to help people get over this gullibility con to do the work of, of creating and writing a book, writing uh, poetry, writing a play, writing a screenplay, and all of those different things um, that it takes to get them from the idea to the other. And in his 20, uh, first 20 hours, he breaks down 
the process of a skill. And he talks about the first step is the frustration. And then you have uh, the next stage of where you're talking, I mean, not talking, but where you're having to do things and it, it sucks. And uh, then the practice, that practice stage turns, so that's a struggling practice stage. And then it turns into a, uh, a better level of practice. And then you start to work towards perfection and then mastery and all of that kind of stuff. But he says you can make, if you stick with something in those first 20 hours, you can get through these first four parts of learning a skill. And then the latter part is what takes those 10,000 hours. And that is the jump between perfecting and mastery. And like I said, it's a great read too. And I'm going to be highlighting it in, highlighting it in another podcast coming up. But Sticking here, the wisdom smack that I have gotten is, is that for each person, you don't only have to think differently like Apple tells you. You not you have to think differently, uh, look objectively at your thoughts, look behind the curtain of the wizard selling you something, and put yourself to the test. Am I being gullible to believe this ancient uh, story of I can truly get something for nothing. We tell these stories in so many different ways of how uh, people have tricked or fooled to get around having to pay the cost of doing something. And that is still, as of this point, a fantasy. And so the gullibility con is built on people believing that they can get something for nothing, that they're more clever than the people that have come up with it. I mean, it just amazes me <laughs> how um, I can uh, see this trope over and over again in life, in books, in movies, where you have the kid who comes in and they are able to uh, trick the powerful who have been doing this forever and who have put this into motion. It's their world. And they come out without having had paid a price. So. That's something that I'm hoping that it will help you to understand a little bit more of the gullibility con and how to break out of it and how to get around it. So guess what? My time is up and I sure do want to thank you for yours. This has been Michelle Spiva with Wisdom Smack and I am going to be seeing you tomorrow. What I'd like for you to do is please share comment, subscribe, rate, and review, and support us. Check the um, show notes for the books mentioned and other ways to support and contact us, as well as using our Amazon link when you do your Amazon shopping daily at michellespiva.com forward slash AMZ. And that's going to do it for today. This is Michelle with Wisdom Smack. And that's going to do it for today's podcast of Wisdom Smack with Michelle Spiva. If you like this podcast, please help us get the word out. Like, comment, subscribe, and even share. And if you really like it, please help us continue to get the word out by considering using this show's link for Amazon. So when you want to go to Amazon and you do all of your general shopping, 
uh, please use michellespiva.com forward slash AMZ. It's simple as that. It doesn't cost you anything extra. And this show might receive a little bit of commission that will go towards helping to further get these episodes out to you and to others. So thank you so much for listening. This has been Michelle Spiva with Wisdom Smack. Bye.